0: Please turn with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of five major prophets, the other four being Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Isaiah chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 20. In verses 2 through 9 of this text, we see a courtroom scene in which the Lord is the plaintiff and the nation of Israel is the defendant. Instead of responding to God's ultimate care and provision for them, these people have failed to give him the loving obedience that is due him. The prophet Isaiah uses the title or a similar term, and I quote, Lord God of hosts, some 60 times. It pictured God as a mighty warrior, a leader of armies, capable of conquering all of Israel's enemies and providing for her survival. The prophet in verse number 10 Applied the names of the sinful cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, to Judah and Jerusalem in condemning their empty formalism in worship. God, God found their activities utterly repulsive when they engaged in the rituals prescribed by Moses because when doing so they persisted in wickedness. God found all sacrifices. Meaningless and even repulsive, even if the one who offered fail in obedience to his laws. Verse 11. In developing his call for cleanliness in verse 16, the Lord pardoned the guilty who desire forgiveness and obedience. In verse 18, the two colors mentioned, scarlet and crimson, speak of the guilt of those whose hands were, and I quote, full of blood, mentioned in verse 15. Full of blood speaks of extreme iniquity and perversity. Snow and wool are substances that are naturally white and therefore portray what is clean of which the blood guilt in verse 15 has been removed. Verses 19 and 20, the prophet offered his readers the same choice God gave Moses in Deuteronomy 28, a choice between a blessing and a curse. They may choose repentance and re- obedience and reap the benefits of the land or refuse to do so and become victims of foreign oppressors. We'll begin reading it, Isaiah chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head... There is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw, so- raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the Daughters of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge of a cucumber field like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. Do not delight in the blood of bulls, or of lambs, or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you the trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's will will cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they be, shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken amen please turn with me to paul's letter to the romans chapter 7 we'll begin reading at verse 7 and go through verse 8 verse 1 romans 7 7 through 8 1 In chapter 7, Paul, the Apostle Paul, pictured himself in a typical way as one wanting to live righteously and fulfill the demands of the law, but frustrated by sin that still resided in him. Nowhere else in Paul's letters and nowhere else in ancient literature is there such a penetrating description of the human plight and contradiction as in this text. There is a remarkable connection between what chapter 6 says about sin and what chapter 7 says about the law. Paul addressed the issue of the believer and the law by a somewhat imperfect analogy with the husband and wife. These verses demonstrate the character of the law. It is holy, righteous, and good. Paul described the role of the law in his transitional experience before his conversion. The interpretation of these verses is as difficult as any in the New Testament. The text is gripped with tension. Paul painted for the readers a picture of the Christian life with all its anguish and its simultaneous hopefulness. This is the ongoing struggle with which believers are involved throughout their lives. Deliverance is promised. Victory is sure, but it is a revelation of hope. Paul described one who hates sin and judges it in his or her life. In this struggle, the believer constantly continues to strive for the good. Both the struggle of chapter 7 and the deliverance of chapter 8 are true and real in the believer's journey. Though the Apostle Paul spoke autobiographically of the tensions of life as he experienced them, it remains apparent that he spoke by implication for all who have the struggle and need for God's enablement and blessing. We'll begin reading Romans chapter 7 at verse 7. This is God's word. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please open your
1: Bibles to the book of Hebrews, uh, to the 8th chapter, though we will be working our way through a significant portion of the 10th chapter here in just a moment. Paul is writing this, I'm sorry, the anonymous author of the book of Hebrews is writing this to a group of people who would gladly describe themselves as and probably accurately, as the most religious people on earth at the time. I mean, they would they, they would certainly think of themselves that way. and because the Romans were extremely liberal in their understanding of religion and pretty well left everybody to worship any way they wanted to, as long as they you know paid a, a pittance toward the the emperor. Uh, but Paul's writing the Hebrews are The anonymous author of Hebrews is writing this particular epistle. We've been studying a significant portion of this for literally months, six or eight months, I think. Uh, We've been centering that upon our great high priest and his particular ministry. I want to quickly review just a couple of points here to lay the groundwork for really the capstone, kind of the final the final description before we get to a series of major applications of all of this in the, in the coming months. Uh, Hebrews 8.1 begins thusly. The point in what we're saying, in other words, the whole point and everything that I've written up to this point is this. We have such a high priest one that is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. He's a minister in the holy places. That is, in the tent, the true tent that the Lord set up, as opposed to, say, the, the tabernacle that men set up or the temple that, that men built. Verse 6 of chapter 8 says, He has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. It's as much more excellent than the old as the covenant that he mediates is more excellent, is better. Why? Because it is enacted, it is based upon better promises. Dropping down to verse 10. This is that covenant. These are the better promises. And we'll recall there were three of them. In verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their people and they shall be, my, I will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, the promise was, and you'll recall this, I trust, I will internalize the law. I will put it in their hearts. It isn't something the external they'll be looking to do. They'll understand the need and desire to do from their hearts. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Whereas the day is going to come, God's saying, that I will be universally known as I truly am. And then the third great and better promise is in verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. It's not that God forgets. God can't, couldn't possibly forget anything. He knows everything and always will know everything. But he chooses not to remember. That is a pattern for believers. A, a pattern we should, be, we should emulate more than we do. He chooses not to remember. I will not recall their sins against them. I will remember their sins no more. Now verse 13 there tells us, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now clearly there is a contrast there between the grace that came in Christ Jesus, and the old law and the system that had been in effect, pointing to Jesus. In verse nine, we are remi- I'm sorry. In chapter nine, we are reminded that though it is re- was ready to vanish away, it clearly hadn't yet vanished away. When Paul, when I keep saying I am sorry, honestly, people do not know who wrote it. I obviously think Paul wrote it. But it is not right for me to say Paul wrote it because it's, it is in dispute. All right. And I've been wrong many times. All right. uh, the sacrificial system was still in place. It was, there was a structure that everybody recognized was part of it. it. That structure, now we do understand it was based on a heavenly pattern, but there were priests involved and they continually, that is, daily offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. There was one day in the year, the great day of atonement, what they called Yom Kippur, in which the high priest himself, after he'd offered a blood sacrifice for his own sins, would enter into the Holy of Holies. At that point, he's in the inner sanctum. He's the only person ever allowed in there and only one day a year, this day. Once he's in there, in the place where it said God dwells beneath the, the cherubim. He dwells there, and it's a really a picture of the ark, which probably wasn't there at this time, but it's, that's the picture. Uh, he would offer yet another blood offering. It was for the sins of the people. and this was, this was the High Holy Day. Incidentally, it wasn't just happenstance that the great Yom Kippur War broke out on Yom Kippur. It's the day when all the reservists have gone home, everybody's worshiping their synagogues at home, and all of a sudden the Arab armies all attack Israel from many, many sides in late, I think, 73. Rather fascinating. Sadat knew what he was doing, let's just say. This had been going on. I mean, this had been going on for 1,400 years. It started when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. And it's still going on year after year after year. Now looking at chapter 9 and verse 11. Begins with a but. Yes, all those things are going on. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things
0: that
1: have come. They have come. Then, through a greater and more perfect tent, one not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered, just one time, once for all, into the holy places. And he didn't go in there by means of the blood of goats and calves. He went in by means of his own blood. And when he did, he thus secured an eternal redemption. And then it continues in verse 25, saying, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year, 1,400 times by then, with blood not his own. For for if that were so, then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once, once for all, and we looked at this phrase, at the end of the age. Where the edge was pointed to this point, and it's reached that point. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I think you'll recall when I concluded last first Sunday's message, we, were, we kind of were hanging there on verse 27 and 28. Just as it's appointed for man to die, and after that comes judgment. The point being, everybody's going to die. But in the same sense that we know everybody's going to die, verse 28 tells us, just as surely, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. But that's not to deal with sin. That's already been dealt with. Now, if you're outside of Christ, and you've rejected the dealing that he's done for your sin... He is the judge, but he's primarily coming back to do what's said here, to deliver, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Just as surely as all men die, Christ will come again. Not primarily to deal with sin, that's been dealt with, but to deliver his people. Now, you know, that actually sounds pretty simple. Why do people have have so much trouble simply accepting that? I mean, what is it in the heart of man that says, nah, I can't be that easy. Thank you. There's got to be a hook. There's got to be something more I can do. Well, someone would say, well, well, it's cultural heritage. After all, the Jews have this system. They've been using it for 14 centuries. I mean, surely, surely, they can't imagine doing it any other way. I mean, whoever wrote this ought to be understand that. And of course, they have the word of God, so they know they're special. They've got the law of God, so they know they're super special. God's been giving them all these special promises and special prophecies and some messianic promises, things like that. Why would they think there was anything wrong with that? OK, well, let's give the benefit of the doubt to the Jews. This whole letter is written to them pointing out that really their hope's in the wrong thing, because all those things have now been fulfilled by Christ. But what about people all around us? I mean, we're not Jews. We're not counting on 1,400 or 3,400 years of cultural heritage here. Most of us don't have more than a couple of decades, a century at most, of culture that we can trace to anywhere. All right. Why well, can't your average person just accept the idea that it is, there is a reality that our sin has been dealt with <laughs> once and for all. Now We're at Paul's closing argument of this section. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll dig into what really is a deep subject. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your grace in gathering us before this text. We thank you for your, your supervision over our lives to gather these, these particular people at this particular time. Lord, there is a need in all of our hearts to get these matters settled. and We pray, Lord, lest we be unstable Christians, lest we, we find ourselves incapable of walking, worthy of our calling, and that, that, that incapacity so defeat us that we mar our testimony. We pray, Lord, for the assurance that only your Spirit can give as we rest our faith on your promises Upon your finished work. Lord, use this to mature our faith, to grow us in our understanding and our love for our Savior. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. As I said, we're entering into some of the deepest things that are revealed by God. First thing I want to do is consider together the very nature of the sacrificial system as an institution, and that takes us to our text, which is Hebrews 10. The nature of it is the sacrificial system is a shadow, an earthly shadow of a heavenly reality, kind of the, kind of the way baptism is a, is a picture, is a, a physical demonstration of a spiritual truth that's happened. All right. But this is, kind of goes the other way, it's an earthly shadow of a heavenly reality. That's what the author says in verse 1, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it, and that would be the law, can never, that's that's pretty definitive, can never by the same sacrifices that are offered continually every year make perfect those who draw near. Now, he's going to be very logical. He says, listen, if they could, if the law could make us perfect, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? I mean, what's the point of coming back with another lamb? What's the point of coming back with another ox? What do do you need any of those things for? If if, if If it's been done, it's been done. Since worshipers, because they've been cleansed, they they wouldn't even realize they were they were sinners anymore. They, they're there. Of course, I don't think any of us think we're there. I, there can't be anybody in this room that thinks they don't sin anymore. If you do, I got news for you. That sin. All right. In fact, Brother Walt read to us. Even the Apostle Paul. There's a there's a phenomenal coincidence I could share at this point, but I won't. <laughs> Even the Apostle Paul is wrestling you know, I, got, I know what I ought to do. Why don't I do it consistently? I know there's ways I shouldn't respond to things. There's less than God-honoring ways in which I just seem to habitually do. That's the Apostle Paul. I mean, He's a pretty good role model, and, and he's struggling with these issues. He, he, he calls himself a wretched man. Who's going to deliver me from this body of sin? This is the Apostle Paul. Of course, he's also the one that says, you know, and he's got it settled. He has figured it out, and that's what he's teaching us. He's trying to teach whoever's writing the Hebrews is trying to teach the Hebrews. It is settled. There is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Brother Walt read that to us. He says in verse 2 there, Otherwise, if the law had made perfect, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered? If if anything could be improved, then it's not perfect. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, they no longer have any consciousness of sin, but of course we all do. So what is the purpose for all those continuing sacrifices? Verse 3 tells us, Those sacrifices, in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. You know that conscience you have that keeps telling you you're not living up? You're not living up to your own standard, nevertheless God's standard? Now, I want to point out, your own standard is deficient. But you don't even live up to it. Nobody does. That's why you feel guilty. God's standard is perfection. We all have troubled consciences. Jews living under the Mosaic Covenant, the law, and I suppose there's still Orthodox Jews that on the, uh, on, Sept- on the evening, Saturday, Friday evening of September 24th of this year, will begin the great day of atonement. For the next 24 hours, they will, they will fast and they will pray and there's, they won't wear leather shoes and things like that because all those things would violate that particular day. And in the back of their minds, this is so important because we're going to come out of this thing with the sins that we've committed now wiped away. We get to start fresh year after year after year. Now, I don't fully understand all that. But they've been doing this for century after century after century. But if these are just reminders of sin, not the removal of those sins, if as as Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 tells us, you know, the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if those things just sanctify for the purification of the flesh, you know, but that's all they do. They just, they're just, it's just a temporary thing. If, the, if There's an argument from the lesser to the greater there. Well, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? But see, they're not there. In fact, the author is very, very clear in verse 4. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away your sins. You have, that, you have that ceremony every year for the high priest, those, all those sacrifices are always a reminder, but it's impossible they actually take away sins. Isn't that a, a pretty definitive statement? That nothing they would offer would take away their sins. There's a significant religious movement in America and around the world, probably the largest church I'm sure they would proclaim to be in the world, uh, that considers the mass to be so important that when you conf- you, add, you take, add to the mass confession and absolution and a whole series of, of, of penance, things you do for penance and good works to add on to that, that basically you're dealing with all those sins just the way God said to do it. And at the end, you hope you've done enough, and the church says, we hope you have too, but just in case you haven't, there's another opportunity after death, but it might take a long, long time, but you got time. It's quite a system. And I don't don't want to mock it. I mean, they're dealing with guilty consciences. They're dealing with it that wonder, have they been good enough? Have they done enough? Anybody seen or remembers the movie Saving Private Ryan? You know, the, the whole story revolves around the fact you've got to save this guy because all his brothers have been killed. and Everybody gets killed trying to save him, but they do ultimately save him. At the end of the movie, you know, 30 or 40 years have passed and he's wandering through that graveyard at Normandy and he's visiting the graves and he turns to his wife or kids or somebody at the end and says, Have I been good enough? And he means, have I been good enough to be worthy of that sacrifice? Have I been good enough? We're never good enough. There's only one that was good enough. Uh, But in Christian America, going to church, joining a church, getting baptized, tithing, how much of that do you have to do to be good enough? How often do you have to do it? How regular? How much? I mean, we we kind of have our own system here. And it's very convenient to be able to measure ourselves against people that aren't part of the system. Because, well, surely God sees we're in a whole better category than they are. So you see, we have a system very much like the Jewish sacrificial system, and our confidence is in the things that we do. Well, if the blood of sheep and goats following God's very specific guidance about when and how often and what way and by who they had to be offered every single day and had been going on by the people of God for 14 centuries, wouldn't do it. Why do we think our idea is going to do it? See, this is the deep, we're in the deep water here. It's a real problem. In fact, the bottom line to all this, in its clearest sense, is there doesn't appear to be anything that we you, me, could do about our sins. I mean, we except commit them, and we do it all the time, even when we don't want to. There's nothing we can do. They're already we're already stained with them, and we've got room for more stains, and we have no doubt at all they're coming. And we can do all kinds of good things around the edges to kind of cover them up so others don't see them which is in the least what everybody else is doing too, but they're still there, and God sees them. You see, the author here has laid out what the problem is. The problem's a lot worse than people think. Beginning in verse 5, however, we are again reminded God has a solution. He's provided a solution. Yes, that was the case. And because of that, another way to say that would be in verse 5 consequently, consequentially, because of that, when Christ came into the world, he said, He said, Sacrifice and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. The interesting thing about what he said there is that he's quoting from Psalm 40. Psalm 40, I read the first five verses of Psalm 40. It is a psalm of David. And as you listen to me read about how he patiently waited on the Lord, that the Lord had inclined him to hear what the Lord had to say, how he'd drawn him from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, how he'd set his feet on a solid rock and put a new song in his heart, And David now was going to go out and proclaim this glorious message to everybody. But it turns out there's more than he could ever tell. That gets you through five verses. And then we come to verse 6. We're still right in the midst of the Psalm of David. And the author of Hebrews said, When Christ came into the world, he said. And what did he say? He said the next verse. In Psalm 40. So who said it? Did David say it? Or did David, the friend of God, speak the words that the Spirit of God gave him that were going to reveal a phenomenal truth about the coming Messiah in his own line, the ultimate son of David? Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me, a body you fashioned for me. The body that was fashioned for the one speaking, for the speaker here, and it isn't David. I mean, God fashioned all of our bodies, but this is a special body. The body that was fashioned for the one speaking by God is given back to God. As a living sacrifice to be employed in complete, obedient service to him. That's really what's going on. You've prepared a body for him because the sacrifices that are going on, and they were going on in David's day, aren't what you truly want because something's wrong with them. Now, going back to the passage that Brother Walt read to us out of Isaiah, what was wrong with all their sacrifices? What was wrong with all of their offerings? The fact they are always going to the temple and offering up songs and praise and stuff. Their heart was far from them. So far from them, they might as well have been Sodom and Gomorrah. And he keeps offering chance after chance after chance. And says, if you don't listen to this, terrible things are going to happen. So why would you not listen? And of course they don't. Why won't people listen? Incidentally, if, if that body that was fashioned for Christ was given to him and then is being given back as a living sacrifice to be lived out, employed in obedient service to God the Father, how does that relate to Romans 12.1? When Paul says, I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as living sacrifices Holy, acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service, which is your reasonable service of worship, which is your spiritual service of worship. Whatever, whatever translation you have, these are living sacrifices. These are lives that have been changed by the Spirit of God. Let's continue a little bit down to verse 6. Not only does he say, Sacrifice and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. He's talking really about the whole Levitical system. God's really not pleased. Now, He might have been pleased in some sense when it really first got started, but it didn't take long before, as mankind does, it corrupted everything. What's missing is their hearts. They were worshiping with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. When God's people gather on the Lord's day, are their hearts there or just their bodies there? So verse 7, then I said, I have come to do your will, O God, and it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Again, that's Isaiah 40. That's verse 7. That's not David, though it is David who wrote it. That's the Messiah speaking. I have come, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And what I've come to do, it's written in the scroll of your book. I mean, the pathway is laid out for me. Christ is representing, represented as finding his duties laid out in the scriptures. This is the way you live a God-honoring life. And did he? Yes, he lived his entire life without sin. Was it a successful life by worldly standards? Well, he ends up nailed to a tree outside Jerusalem. With, With all the people he was trying to deliver, chanting, crucify him, crucify him, we have no king but Caesar. By earthly standards, we would not say that's the winning ticket. But it was the most successful life ever lived. Amen. I have come to do your will. He set himself up to carry out wholehearted obedience to the will of God. And that's exactly what he did. And then the author in verse 8 goes back over that again and, kind of, and explains what he meant when he said that. Now, he's not talking about what David meant when he wrote it. He's talking about what it really means when Jesus said it through David. And now we understand it in the light of the cross. When he said, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure, and now he goes to the four categories of Levitical sacrifices. Sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings. All offered according to the law in certain specified ways at specific times. But he added, now you didn't want those, but behold, I've come to do your will. Our Lord's mission was to be completely preoccupied with doing God's will. And in so doing, he was not conformed to this world. He was transformed by the renewing of his mind, in a sense. Ah! And like we're to be, we're to be transformed by the doing of our mind. We're not to be conformed to the the pattern of this world. By testing, we are to discern the will of God because that's the good and acceptable and perfect way for us to live. Now I'm right back into Romans 12. That's verse 2. In doing that, verse 9 continues in Hebrews 10. He does away with the first, but it was always purposeful in order to establish the second. And what he's saying is that that whole system of works, whether it was the the temple and the Levitical sacrificial system, or whether it's the whole Roman mass system, or whether it's any other religious system, and most of us have been in, in various forms of religious systems all of our lives in America. Whether it's any of those things, he says, they're done away with. Now, he came and gave his life and gave his blood to buy the church. He's the head of the body of the church. So the church is the church. That is his answer. But all these systems, all these systems provide a false peace, a false hope, because now you've done enough so that other Christians are patting you in the back and say, well, you're in. We're all hoping they'll do that for us. Paul's saying, the author of Hebrews is saying he did away with all of that in order to establish the second. And just to be specific to the Hebrews, that'd be the sacrificial system, the temple, the priesthood, all those prescribed offerings on certain days in certain ways, all of that's done. Washed away by the complete work of Jesus Christ. If you doubt it, hang around four decades and watch what Vespasian and Titus's Roman armies do. And what they do is they scour it right off the face of the earth. No more temple. Their religious systems today, Christian religious systems here, are longing for the day when the temple's rebuilt and the sacrifices begin again. How do you get there? Why would you get there? What would be the point? Now move with me to verse 9. Let me just read it all first, and then we'll take a little bit of it apart. And by that will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's a lovely line. Let me begin by asking this. When he says, by that will, whose will? Is that your will? Now, that's the will of God. By the will of God, the author of Hebrews is writing to these Hebrew believers, we have been set apart, sanctified through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when he fulfilled God's will, that's the reason his sacrifice affected what all those animal sacrifices couldn't do. All the good works you can do, can't do. All the best you can be, can't do. His perfect sacrifice did. What was accomplished? The sanctification of his people. Everybody feel real sanctified right now? <laughs> Aren't you glad sanctification's a process? Because if you had to feel perfect right now, instead of knowing God says you're going to be perfect, you'd feel this, this just can't happen. But the word of God says we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. And then just to drive it home, the author says in verses 11, it's like he's going to go over the ground for like the eighth time in this. He says, listen, every priest stands every day in his service. He offers repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Think about the religious systems all around us. They're doing all kinds of things that that people are putting their confidence in. Rather than in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But when Christ, verse 12, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. 14, for by a single offering, he is perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. Now, there's a glorious truth. Remember, I've, I've mentioned any number of times when you go to Romans 8, 28 and 29, and we read that that we know that all things work together for those that love the Lord, to those that call according to his purpose, that everyone that he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, and it runs the whole process from their calling to their justification, to their sanctification, to their glorification. I said, those are all past hits. In the mind of God, it's done. And here we have the also the Hebrews saying, by that single sacrifice, he's perfected for all time, those are in the process of being perfected. How can you do that? How can you have something being done that's done? Well, you're not God, so you don't understand that. I cannot even begin to explain that to you. But that is what the Word of God says. And then the Holy Spirit comes along in verse 15 and bears witness to us. After saying, this is the covenant, and then where does, he, where does the Holy Spirit go? The Holy Spirit, he quotes from Jeremiah 31. We spent a lot of time there. This is the new covenant. This is the covenant I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their heart, and I'll write them in their mind. That's the first better promise. And Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's the final better promise. I think we can assume the middle one's included. And the stroke at the bottom of this, this whole sum of truth is this. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Where the cleansing that Jesus Christ had offered has occurred, There's no need for further sacrifices for sin. We're on on this side of the cross. If the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to you, if your sins have been nailed to that cross, then the challenge for you is to live worthy of that calling, to live in the light of what's already been done for you and is in the process of being done to you with a sure a confident expectation it's finished in the mind of God and ultimately it's finished in your life. You just have to live it. It is a great and a glorious thing that, that we're called to a memorial of what the cost was. But what it accomplished is our lives to be lived for the glory of God. This is a magnificent passage. I I don't know what the Hebrews did with this. I, 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 historically, I can tell you, there was not a great revival among the Jews when they got this letter. But it accomplished the purpose God gave it for. And we can, we can relish the fact that over the centuries, God has continued to use passage like this to build up and strengthen the people of God for the glory of his name. Well, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we... We thank you for the gift of truth. We thank you for the gift of the spirit of truth to help us see and understand and apply these truths. We pray, Lord, that in confidence of your finished work in our lives, we will will live lives that reflect that we are yours, that our value system ultimately is your value system. And Lord, we won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We won't live fearful, anxious, fretful lives. We will live in hope. We will rest in your finished work and we'll be known as individuals who have a peace that is beyond understanding. In the midst of a world that it seems to always be losing its mind. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.